Information-fueled, opinion-driven. This is the Michael Del Giorno Show, Super Talk 99.7. WTN University, the advancing church. I don't care if you're an atheist. I don't care if you're a Jesus freak. I don't care if you're a Republican, a Democrat, a lefty, a righty, an independent. Without an advancing church... There's no political freedom for anyone. That's what we've been exploring now for 20-plus weeks uh, with our uh, headmaster and professor, Kevin Cookagee. The advancing church, without it, there can be no political freedom, and without an adapter, there can be no headphones. Finally! Good. There you go. You're all good. Do you have his mic on? Yep. Oh, there you go. Now you're on. I've got it in my ears. Thanks, Michael. Welcome Hope back. Hope you had a great Easter. I know you ate a lamb. <laughs> we did eat a lamb. That's the only thing I can't eat. You know, there's two things about lambs. Um, and I used to, I used to like to not think about cows because I think cows had the most gorgeous eyes. And then I played on Steve Largent's farm one day That's with right. him, and, right. and they were so stupid that I never felt bad about eating them again. But there's just something, and I think it's because I had a, we had a goat at my school, uh, you know, who used to eat our homework and hang out with us after that football. Really happened? Yeah, that really happened. <laughs> I and, thought that was just a myth. No, his name was Billy. He was great. Um, and then my friend owns restaurants in Tampa. And we go to not – if you could picture a Sam's, but this is for restaurants, mm-hmm. not for consumers. And just the lambs, the way they were all just kind of lined up. Can, you know, you kind of like when you, when you go and you see the jars of ketchup. Yes. That's how the bodies were of the lambs. And I just, so between that and, of course, the silence of the lambs mm-hmm. movie. What were the lambs yes. doing? Were they crying? I don't know what it is. I can't eat a lamb. But you do something very special with, with lamb over Easter. And yes. That will be the only day I can't <clears throat> come over and eat, by the way. Yeah, and we do it also reclining on the floor, which is a challenge because you have to – we've got to put a That's how we watch bread cloth. games. Not quite as religious, but go ahead. <laughs> a tablecloth over the floor, um, and it's it's a delicate balance trying to make sure that we don't spill anything as we go around through the process. But yeah, it's a – Ann Voskamp had a um, – I don't know when she, when she wrote this, but it's a step-by-step um, through the Passover process, and you read Scripture, and the children read Scriptures, and they ask questions, and we read it. It's back and forth like in church, so – yeah, we've done it for three years, and I like the tradition. You know, I think every day is Easter Sunday for me, moment by moment by moment. And it's hard sometimes, you know, I like to um, to get my mind, heart, and soul all in a position and a posture before God yeah. uh, prior to Easter. I, I absolutely had one of the most glorious Easter's. We were just coming back from vacation, and I was actually too busy to, you know, worry about posturing myself mm-hmm. uh, for Easter. I woke up to have coffee. There was a a bunny in my backyard. My daughters thought that was a sign. Of course, I think it's about a lamb, not about a yeah. bunny. But uh, then I was listening to Keith Green and the Easter song. We went to our church. It was, it was going to send us to Overflow. And I've always wanted to go to Grace because I love Pastor Steve Berger. And so I said, no, let's go to Grace. Let's not sit in Overflow. And and so I'm driving. I'm listening to the Easter song by Keith Green. I'm getting ready for, for service. I walk in. What's the first song in worship? Keith Green, the Easter song. Um, I mean, just everything was in line. I had an absolutely glorious Easter. I have a glorious Easter every single day that I know my sins are covered. And um, every day, a little bit more at a time. I wish it were more. Uh, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus and less and less like the me that was born. And uh, and I have eternal security So and, and an abundant life on earth. So I trust you and everyone listening had a great Easter. But spring break is over and it's back to class. Yes, sir. <clears throat> and Michael, um, since we've established a solid foundation of broadcast, uh, sort of a body of work, if you will, concerning the duty of the church in the political arena, I thought it might be fun and instructive if we were to tackle some questions posed by listeners that I've received from time to time over the over the uh, months of class. So in the spirit of the Republican town hall meeting Q&A, 
We're kind well, of following what, yeah, that's, what, that's what we're going to do. I, I've entitled the remarks Taking Sides, which is what we must do in order to answer questions. And um, as you'll note from the questions we examined today, that the line of comments and, and the ones I've chosen to respond to get at the heart of the matters that we've considered during the year. Um, I'm doing this because it's my hope that our investigation here today, and I'm sure it's going to extend into next week because the questions the questions are short, but my answers are in some respects long. I hope it'll serve as a good review of fundamental concepts, strategies, and principles for the church, as well as inspiring further study of these truths. A few housekeeping items, though. I've not edited any of the questions. All 10 of the questions are presented here exactly as they were posed to me. And I've chosen these particular questions and comments because they contain the seeds of good teaching, which impelled me to devote my energies to providing thoughtful and, I hope, thought-provoking answers that all of your audience can use as a reference when making arguments to defend the church and the Christian faith in the face of headwinds of our time. Can I just interrupt? This would uh-huh. be a good time to interrupt. Because there's headwinds on two fronts. Uh, there's headwinds in culture. You see, as a culture, and I don't care if you're an atheist right now listening to me, and I don't care if you're a born-again, spirit-filled Christian listening to me. In this culture, we have abandoned absolute truth, biblical truth, absolute truth, for a philosophy. And it's spiritual pluralism, very similar to what Muhammad was entering in Mecca, that all gods are the same, all religions are the same, none have more validity than the others, none have any more detail or truth to them or validation to them. They're all the same. Whatever you want to believe is fine. That's spiritual pluralism. Then we also have moral relativism. Moral relativism Moral relativism believes there is no absolute truth. That's why when we talk about the bathroom issue, we're all scratching our head. I'm going to be very blunt here because you need to be. My goodness, how hard is it? You got a penis, you go to the boys' room. You got a vagina, you go to the girls' room. Seriously, we can't figure out where to go to the bathroom? Well, no, you can't. Because we've abandoned all sense and sensibility and any absolute truth. So in this culture, if you're somebody that could be, and it's still considered a mental illness, by the way, but you don't know what you are. You have a penis, but you think you're a woman. That's as truthful as if you had a penis or didn't have one. So we've abandoned truth and culture for moral relativism. And in the church, we've abandoned our advancing nature our salt and light preserving. Why? For fear of being bigoted. Or, in many cases, well, it's beneath the church. I serve a kingdom, not a country. And so I I just want to interrupt and say, headwinds on every front. There's headwinds in the body of Christ for people that believe in absolute truth and take their stand and believe that there's, there's things that are absolutely right and absolutely wrong, and we will not budge, and like salt, we will preserve this culture. So our abandonment as an advancing church has allowed this new culture. And for somebody that wants to stand up and be salt and light, you better get ready to get hit from all sides. Because you're going to have your family turn against you, you're going to have your church family turn against you, your pastor turn against you, and everybody in culture is already to stomp on your head. All right, there, I went. No, that's good. It's good setup. Because I want to begin by dispelling some myths. Um, I think the first half of the class here will devote to sort of laying the foundation. Myths about Christians and political affairs. And I also don't want to assume that everyone listening today has heard every lesson or fully grasped all of the arguments. But as you know, Michael, a common misconception lurks among the modern American Christians that politics can be separated from our beliefs and that the church, the body of Christ, should not be engaged in the political arena. But nothing could be further from the truth. As we've explained before, elections, conventions, politics, all of that is merely practical means for implementing a body of beliefs about the human condition. Every policy advanced, every piece of legislation passed, 
and every opinion rendered by a court presuppose certain beliefs about the nature and relationship between humanity and government. From whom and how you tax, to whom you choose to defend, to what you can say, think, or do, and how you spend your money. So number one, we must reject the notion that human existence can be divided into political and non-political segments. We are people, and any ideas, policies, or decisions that affect people are inescapably political in nature. Now the Bible, of course, has something to say about people and the human condition, who we are, where we come from, where we're going, and our duties. The Bible also has a lot to say about governments, kings, power, and authority, and we'll get to that later. So if politics concerns the affairs of people, and if the Bible has some important things to say about people and governments, what conclusions might we draw from the ongoing effort to discourage the church from engaging in politics? Might it have something to do with what the church believes? Indeed, what Scripture has to say about people and government stands in stark contrast to the spirit of the age. The Word of God, in fact, makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. We must therefore understand that the push to keep the church neutral or out of political affairs is a deliberate strategy advanced by those who seek to keep the influence of the people of God out of every area of culture. You weren't watching last night, but I watched the town hall meeting, Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the chosen staged questions for Ted Cruz uh, was a person who was apparently, quote-unquote, undecided, and their greatest concern was, you know, how will your faith, your Christianity, impact your presidency, and isn't it important to be inclusive of all religions or, frankly, be aware that we are not to be intermingling religion and politics? It was a great question, and in fact, I would have loved to have played Ted Cruz's answer, which was, I think there have been two brilliant answers. Um, One was Marco Rubio earlier in the campaign, uh, an atheist asking him, you know, why should I elect you president? I'm an atheist. What are you going to do for atheists? And Marco Rubio gave a brilliant answer, and Ted Cruz did last night as well. There's this notion that being a professed Christian or a devout Christian is a disqualification or a concern, which is a complete ignorance of what the Establishment Clause really says. And uh, Ted Cruz handled that. But this is a constant headwind in culture, and it came out as one of five, I think it was, uh, audience asked questions of Ted Cruz, and he handled it brilliantly. Well, I mean, it shapes everything he is, and, and certainly that's going to come to office with him, but he'll be president of everybody. And I love the book that William Federer wrote. There's a lot in it for atheists, and, the, and that's been the thesis really for mm-hmm. our entire class, uh, that you cannot have liberty and freedom without an advancing church. Right. And, and, and you'll find that handy as an atheist too, I assure you. Well, and as you'll see, a lot of these questions that I've chosen to answer today revolve around that same thing, this misunderstanding of, of, of the separation. They are separate questions, but each one sort of is a subcategory of that broad topic. But this, this idea and this attempt to keep the church and the influence of the people of God out of every area of culture has been going on since the beginning of time. And contrary to popular belief, the conflict between the church and the state is central to our faith. We discussed from the beginning of this lesson, it's not the beginning of our, our study, It's not relegated only to those with a political interest, nor is it secondary to caring for the poor or to the vast body of social programs diluting the impact of the modern church. Too many Christians forget that Jesus was condemned to death for a political crime. We covered that in early lessons. Jesus explained that his kingdom was not of this world and that all temporal power is subject to the authority of God. And for that, he was deemed a threat, a rebel against the Roman state leading to the political punishment of crucifixion. Jesus didn't die of cancer or natural causes. 
nor was he killed in a chariot accident. He was crucified by the state for a political crime. Now, the Sanhedrin would have crucified him for blasphemy. Stoned him. They or, couldn't well, they wouldn't have crucified him, but yeah. So, But I mean, but they didn't. They didn't and it was want, Pilate and Rome. Well, exactly. They didn't want the responsibility. Remember, both Pilate and the Sanhedrin wanted to avoid responsibility for his death because the, both of them knew that he truly had not committed any crime. So the Sanhedrin handed him over to the state, let him take care of it. Pilate's like, I see no crime that he's done. Here's Barabbas. I don't you know, want to wash my hands of it. But it was a political crime in the end. In the end, that did it for. People forget that. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, the music was coming on. Do you want to? All right, we can go to the next thing if you want. I didn't know if that was a natural breaking point. It's a good break. Uh, We're just kind of doing Q and A today. Uh, We've been walking through about 22 classes, and people have had some questions. Uh, And uh, it's we picked probably the 10 most relevant questions. The answers will be longer than the questions, and the answers will continue when we come back on WTN University, the Advancing Church. Without it, there can be no political freedom. Next on WTN. 1026, you're listening to WTN University. I recognize, by the way, that this is different. Um, as I always say, and this is kind of our cell line, giving you the education the government refuses to give you. Because they won't, the media won't, we have to. And so we've been uh, looking at the advancing church because we're a church in hiding and in apathy. And because of that, culture is running amok. And our republic is collapsing because it was meant for a moral, self-governed people. And so... If you take out all believers from the duty and devotion to our republic and civic duty, you get a different republic. And the tail's wagging the dog. The advancing church. Without there can be no political freedom. Q&A day with our professor, Kevin Kukaji. Thanks, Michael. And before we get into the first questions, I was finishing sort of a setup. And our setup is a little bit of a review so all of the questioners can know what we've covered. And we were getting into Christ versus Caesar and the church versus the state, which so many people shy away from. They think that that's not a, an issue the church needs to concern itself with. But to the contrary, Christ against the Caesar and church against the state stands at the very center of the gospel, and it's further evidenced by the collusion of the Sadducees and the Pharisees who made common cause in an attempt to trick Jesus. We know the story. First of all, the Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. Right? The Sadducees were collaborationists with the government, The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, whereas the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, and they were zealots. They wanted to overthrow the government. So these two groups did not get along except when they wanted to trick Jesus, and they were so threatened by Jesus, so they came to him with his story, as you know. They said, look, let's ask him if if he should pay taxes to Caesar. If he says that he'll pay taxes to Caesar, then we know that he's a collaborationist. He's accepting that Caesar is equal to God. If he says not to pay taxes to Caesar, then that means he's a zealot and he doesn't think the state has any power. Yet, as we know, Jesus undid them, telling them to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Notice that Jesus did not admonish them to give to Caesar everything that Caesar demanded. He said to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And this is a critical distinction because kings and governments by nature and habit always seek domain over more than what is rightfully theirs. The command that we give to God, what belongs to God, establishes a clear limitation on Caesar's power. There's no room for interpretation. We must not give to Caesar what is God's. Perhaps you can see why so much effort is expended then in keeping the church out of political affairs. Also, the manner of Christ's death is important. Death is important in confirming our political duty. When Paul writes that everyone is to be subject to the governing authorities, or when we read that we are to submit to the authority of leaders, whether emperors or governors, or that we should pray for all those in authority, we must never mistake that as a command to obey unconditionally. 
Were that the case, then Jesus Christ died for nothing. Christ could have avoided crucifixion by simply obeying Romans 13. Likewise, had Paul obeyed his own counsel, he would have escaped torture and beheading by Nero. And if Peter had complied with his own admonitions, would he not too have dodged being hung upside down on a cross for his failure to worship the state or the genius of Rome? The suggestion that Scripture supports yielding to authority even when the authority exceeds the bounds established by God is to suggest that the Bible commands that we obey the state above God. Such a reading of Scripture contradicts Christ's own words while flying in the face of the manner of death of Christ, Paul, Peter, all of the disciples save for John, and every martyr who over two million years has died for two million two thousand years has died for Christ in the face of demands for absolute loyal loyalty to the state. So the Bible is unambiguous that all authority, including the authority of governments, is derived from God. If governments disobey God, we must disobey them, lest we be subject to punishment for rendering to Caesar what is God's. These truths were understood by Augustine. They inspired John Knox, Samuel Rutherford, and the authors of our own Declaration of Independence. The biblical distinction between true law and illegitimate power also served as the moral foundation for the civil rights movement, which we covered. And this was so eloquently captured in Martin Luther King's famous letter from a Birmingham jail. The conviction that the church must stand erect as a counterpower to unlawful political power also motivated Wilberforce, as we covered, in his fight to abolish the slave trade, while providing the basis for the successful defense of human liberty in Poland and the Philippines in the 80s, which we started this class with. So with these foundations, then, let's look to the specific questions that were asked of me, and we'll start to go them one by one. All right. WTN University, the advancing church. Without it, there could be no political freedom. Q&A begins when we come back. This always makes me think of a fat person walking into a room. Doesn't this just sound like fat music? <laughs> I'll have the corn powder with cheese supersized with a Coke, um, a caramel sundae with nuts, a cherry and apple pie. No, and instead I got Mr. <laughs> Fitness. Uh, WTN University, the advancing church. Without there can be no political freedom. Our headmaster and professor is Kevin Kukaji. And uh, kind of like the Republican candidates last night at a town hall, we're focusing on Q&A. We've done about 22 classes, and we've taken 10 of the questions that our uh, classmates have written in, and uh, and we're giving answers to them. And so I turn it right back over to Kevin Kukaji. Thanks, Michael. Question number one. The question is... Tell me why Christians should be informed about politics and why politics matter, not which political side is correct. Notice the trap. First part of that answer comes from, is this. How can one claim what is important for Christians, that it is important for Christians to be informed about politics, if the conclusion one draws from the information is deemed irrelevant or off limits? It is, after all, conclusions that lead one to take sides. The whole point of seeking information on any subject is to draw conclusions in order that we may act upon them. We're not just watching a movie or playing a game here. It defies human reason to suggest that we inform ourselves about political matters without taking sides. It would be like telling someone it's important to read the recipes, but not to make the meals. Or that one should look at menus without any intention of ordering (laughs) food. Or that one should chew, but not swallow. At its core, this is a manifestation of the endless effort to separate consequences from ideas, that our deepest convictions should not inform our political views. Yet, as we explained earlier, 
politics are merely a practical means of implementing a body of beliefs about the human condition. And since our views about the human condition are informed by our religious beliefs, it is entirely appropriate that our Christian faith inform our political views and lead us to decisions. Now, the second part of that question also seems to, pre- seems to presuppose the possibility of neutrality, and you were talking about this re- with regard to the bathroom issue. It was, don't advise which political side is correct. Well, to claim neutrality on political issues is the same as saying one has no worldview or no beliefs on political issues. Is not the demand that we discuss the importance of politics while insisting on neutrality really just an attempt to silence opinions that different from our, differ from our own, or perhaps to avoid being put in the uncomfortable position of having to take sides or make one's views known? And by sides, by the way, I don't refer here to the superficial designations of Republican or Democrat. The only thing that matters is what is right and wrong, what is true and what is false. Do you know what the original slogan of the show was? It's not about right versus left. It's about right versus versus wrong, wrong. which is – it's interesting you bring this up, but I I know you're not quite done answering. But um, two things. I think back to a trick interview uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where they were trying to position me as a shock jock. Mm You know, and my and my, that's how I arrived at that. The other slogan, which is, listen, the only thing shocking left in life is the truth. So if the truth is shocking, then yeah, I'm a shock jock. But I know where you're really implying uh, that I do this as a persona. I do this as a shtick, just to provoke uh, people to fight and to listen. Therefore, um, but I, I had a reporter ask me, "Can a Democrat be a Christian?" And I did the same thing you just did. You know, I, I called out the loaded question. Um, and then I think to my trip to Washington, D.C., and, um, and my daughter, in the purity of her 11-year-old mind, uh, couldn't make everything add up. And she looked at me and she said, how can a Christian be a Democrat? And she meant that purely, mm-hmm. you know, because my beliefs of life come from Scripture. I noticed that the angels went to Mary at conception, not birth. They went to Joseph at conception, not birth. I have seen my children long before they were born. That has influenced my worldview and my opinion. Um, And so when you have, and we do have a two-party system, and one party is so counter to the worldview and the values and scriptural values and beliefs that there is a disconnect that you and I can articulate and an 11-year-old can sense. Um, And so I just, I love that whole notion of, yeah, it should inform you, it should shape you, and yes, it ought to impact how you order, how you chew, and what you swallow. Exactly. Neutrality is a myth. We've talked about that a little bit before, but everyone has a point of view, a set of beliefs, presuppositions that underlie each and every assertion one makes. If I claim, for example, moral relativism, that there's no absolute truth, my claim presupposes that what I believe to be true, that is, there's no objective moral standard, is more true or closer to the real truth than what you might believe. It's an absolute, an absolute truth, truth in yeah. and of itself. Right. So in doing so, I'm not being neutral. I am taking sides, attempting to distinguish my beliefs from yours, which only makes sense if there's a standard beyond or outside of your beliefs and mind against which we can measure or compare the truth of our beliefs. Scripture does not celebrate neutrality. Indeed, Jesus Spits has some harsh mouth. words yeah, for the lukewarm. <laughs> We're unlikely to be excused by failing or refusing to take a stand on issues, especially political issues. By the way, it, it sounds like wrath. It sounds like anger and judgment. If you go back to the original word, it's really to projectile vomit. In other words, it literally and, – and I think there's a great way to explain this in that – I can do this because my wife has never and will never, and I would trust her in a room of naked men, ever cheat on me. Uh, but imagine if your wife was cheating on you and you knew it. What would hurt more, 
her saying I love you? Oh, wash your clothes, they're all ready for you. Look at this beautiful meal I made for you, as, you know, the devotion of, of, is clearly not really there. It would actually sicken you, the acts of love and kindness. So when believers walk around saying, oh, I love the Lord, I love Jesus, and then lives a different way, or you're caught somewhere in the middle, you're not hot, you're not cold. Listen, I think that's why Jesus went on earth, gravitated towards the sinners. Now, Peter couldn't figure it out. What are you doing in there with them? Why are you sitting having wine with them? Are you kidding me? They're heathens, they're prostitutes, they're tax collectors, they're... They're they're buffoons, and you, because and I know this as a Christian. I want to be around real brothers, and I was Sunday at church. These people loved Jesus, and you could tell, you could feel it. The Holy Spirit was there, the enthusiasm was there. I want to be around real brothers, not fake ones. Or you know what? Give me somebody lost as a goose. At least they're authentic. I can't stand the the disingenuous ones in the middle. But that original interpretation is that neutrality that you're talking about yeah. makes Jesus want to vomit, projectile, duck. Well, as Nick did throughout the halls of Congress. Right. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, question number two. Is America a Christian nation? And it has a second part to it. Did our founding fathers intend to establish a Christian nation? This line of inquiry is used usually to suck unsuspecting Christians into a debate regarding Thomas Jefferson's Bible, what George Washington or Ben Franklin meant between the lines of the writings. Or, you know, deist versus... Exactly, the various proofs of which founders were Christians, which were deists, and who might have been an atheist. Indeed, scholars have devoted volumes to those details for anyone interested in knowing the truth. The question, however, is not so much whether America was founded as a Christian nation. Christian, after all, is a personal rather than a national identifier associated with one's beliefs about Jesus Christ. And while our founders were Christians, while it is an undisputed historical fact, many of our founders, undisputed historical fact that the American colonies were established, nurtured and governed according to a moral order that was unapologetically rooted in biblical principles for 150 years prior to our political separation from England in 1776, to focus on those particulars misses the point. The subject hinges on understanding what our founders, those who drafted our founding documents and implemented our governing philosophy, believed about the nature of man and the duty of government. It is without question that our founders understood that absent a moral order, that is, order in the soul, there could be no community order, constitutional order. It was the permanent problems of the human condition that led our founders to structure an enduring constitution whereby men's tendencies to fraud, violence, ambition, and avarice could be restrained without unduly restricting the liberties of the people. These views were informed by the religious beliefs of our founders, many of whom were Christians, and all of whom acknowledge that rights come from God and that the role of government is limited to securing those God-given rights, as so plainly described in our Declaration of Independence. As John Quincy Adams said, this republic is altogether wrong for an immoral people. So because we have changed and we no longer see self-governance as our role and a limited government to protect liberty and freedom— as government's role, well, we get a lot of things backwards, and sometimes we have to conveniently reshape history in order to justify it. Uh, great segment, great question. More questions and answers in WTN University. The advancing church, without it, there can be no political freedom when we return on WTN. All right, 10.55, we only have two minutes left. Uh, we had a lot of setup today in WTN University, so we're only going to get in question one, two, and three, but I promise in part two next week we'll get four through ten, and these questions and these answers are vital to this entire course. Thanks, Here's Michael. Kevin. Thank you. Question number three is, how can politics serve the kingdom of God, that is, voting, running for office, and just being involved or informed? The answer lies not so much in explaining how politics can serve the kingdom of God as in demonstrating that political power unchecked by the church 
will always devolve into tyranny. Regrettably, the church is in retreat, especially in America, conforming to the culture and cooperating with the state, sometimes unwittingly at the expense of our liberties and to the detriment of the entire social civil order. And while some of this can be explained by ignorance, most of it is driven by fear, fear of conflict, fear of discomfort, fear of persecution. Yet succumbing to fear is the surest way for the enemies of truth to prevail. And if we refuse to debate eternal truths in the political arena, is there any question whose agenda will be imposed? Our our duty is to preserve knowledge of God, a charge that necessarily puts us at odds with the world. Yet Jesus promised that we would encounter conflict, opposition, and even death as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. This is why Christ told his disciples that he was sending them like sheep among wolves and that they would be persecuted and hated by everyone because of him. There's no avoiding it. The entire Bible is an account of God's people confronting kings, powers, rulers, and governments. Jesus promises that we will be brought before governors and kings on his account as witnesses to them and to other believers. And retreat is not an option. Jesus told Peter that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Because gates are defensive mechanism, the implications of Christ's words are clear. The kingdom of God is on the advance, invading all of life, including the political arena. It is not, therefore, a question of whether one should engage in politics. Politics, as we've explained, touches everyone. The only question is, on whose side are we? And I might add, probably the most powerful thing you taught on this entire course. Consequences delayed are not consequences avoided. I got news for you. If you're not experiencing conflict, you might might want to take a long look at the authentic Christ life you're living. Secondly, if you're not experiencing conflict today as an advancing church, you will face it. And the, and the strongest force of brunt of its force when you relinquish it. You're going to get it one way or the other. Fighting to preserve it or fighting or being punished when it's conquered one way or the other. What a great class. More Q&A next week.